Making Sense of Chaos is a podcast exploring anything and everything but dinner table talk. It's a conversation about death and dying, love, grief and hope. And the beauty and terror of realising that everyone you know will die. At the very moment of our birth, we are in essence pushed off a cliff. Life is the fall. There's nothing any of us can do to prevent the inevitable. We'll all hit the bottom at some point, and none of us knows when. Trying to break the fall is futile, and will only add to our frustration. Those are the beautiful words of Asha Packman, President of Meditation Australia, and our guest for the podcast today. Having suffered the suicide of his sister and then his mum, Asher was then diagnosed with a rare form of progressive blood cancer. In this episode, we felt immensely grateful as Asher shared with us some of his innermost emotions and experiences on death, suffering and love. Asha starts by telling us about his life before everything started to shift gears. I guess I was just, um, I guess my model of, of living was, was very different. You know, I, I just did the corporate the corporate thing, you know, just grew up in, in the inner suburbs in Melbourne and, and, you know, went to university and then went on to have a corporate career. And I was just, you know, doing the normal thing without really asking too many questions. And um Life kind of came along and, and smacked me across the face a couple of times and, and I was forced to kind of look inside myself and um, figure out what I, who I really was and what I really wanted out of life and basically took a 180-degree turn. But, you know, I had to go through a lot of turmoil in order to kind of um, learn those lessons, I guess, and I feel like that's the trajectory of a lot of people's lives. Certainly a lot of um, people that I work with, it, you know, it, you need that kind of, um, wake up call, I guess, and sometimes that can come in in the form of real discomfort or real trauma. Um, then mm. you find that you learn from that place, and you, know, you can look back on it some years later, and you know almost see it as a blessing. Mm. Traumatic growth. Yeah, yeah. Ashley, you mentioned those 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 changes, those traumatic experiences that you've that you've had. Ends your first sort of memory of that occurring. Um, specifically, it was it was back in 2007. Um, so I was in Dubai and I was about to I was I was at a hotel room about to get in a cab and go down in order to give a keynote speech at a big um, regional marketing conference. And um, I had got a phone call from my mum and she told me that my sister had my younger sister, my only sibling, had taken her own life. So that was kind of the real beginning, you know, I remember just sitting on the bed. Um, I was I was frozen to the bed. And um, I remember um, a colleague of mine coming in to see if, if I was okay. And, um, and she, was, she was fantastic. Like I told her what had happened and she just sat with me. And I remember after a little while, she said, um, Asha, you've really got to move. And I said, why? And she said, look at your legs. And they basically turned blue because I was sitting cross-legged on the bed and I, hadn't, I just hadn't moved. 
at all. Mm. And, and so she sort of helped me onto the onto the floor. And I guess that's my first memory, kind of almost disbelief, which was a common theme for a while. I think as certain things unfolded in my life during that period, I was fond of saying, I can't believe this has happened. And I think the connection, I think, you know, we use that as a cliche in modern language, but I think for me, actually couldn't believe it. And so therefore there was a rift between um, what my brain was doing and an actual reality. Like I just couldn't connect to, to reality. And, and my way of getting around that was saying, I, I can't believe this has happened. But when you actually can't, I think that's when the psyche starts to get torn. Your sister, was this, was, did she have a battle with mental health? Was, was this somewhat unexpected? What was the sort of background behind um, look, it's it's complicated. Um, she she had talked in quite dire terms at, at, at some points in conversations with her in the years leading up to that. But um, you sort of it's almost like part of you doesn't want to hear it, so you kind of don't take it on board as seriously as you should. It's like yeah, yeah, sure, you know, a bit of that, especially yeah. when you're young. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, in hindsight, there was probably a lot of. Um, um, not that I didn't pick up, to be honest. Mm. Looking at it, looking at it now in in, in retrospect. So, so yeah, but um, it was a very conscious decision for her. You know, you we could see the way she prepared everything that it certainly wasn't um, certainly wasn't a spur of the moment decision. It was something that she'd been thinking about for for a long, long time, like maybe more than a year. And, yeah. and Asha, and Asha, from from that point, did you go? You described yourself sitting on the bed, almost and cold, in, in shock. I can't even begin to to understand. But from from that point, where did your life take you? Instant. Um, well, obviously, I didn't. Um, I didn't um, on stage that day. I literally just had to get a flight home um, as quickly as I could, and I just remember. Um, you know, I, I just remember that flight home. It was kind of like um, almost outside of myself. You know, it was one of those times where I wasn't really in my body. I actually remember there was a um, a guy sitting next to me on the plane, and he was a it was a West Australian guy, and he was in oil and gas. I remember just literally like talking his ear off and like literally asking him like so much about himself. It was like it was like a, like a machine gun. Like you know, try, I think I found out more about the oil and gas industry than I ever cared. Pure destruction. Um, like yeah, it was just like yeah. just please, please don't make me have to think yeah, about yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and so the poor guy sort of copped it for the entire flight, but still. Anyway, yeah. Um, eventually, I, I I arrived back home, and what I remember is is um, my mum opening the door and and the look on her face like I'll never forget it. It was it was harrowing, you know. Didn't even have to say any words. Just hugged, yeah. but that initial when I caught her eye, that was that was harrowing. That next few days and sort of sort everything out. And a typical man, you sort of try to make yourself as busy as you possibly can. So it was like, please give me more things to organise, you know. So I literally went into almost this mania trying to sort of um, um, figure everything out. You know, it was um, it was extraordinary. The only thing I couldn't do um, was write the eulogy. I just couldn't find words, and um, then they all came out of me all at once. And it was actually a dream. Uh, um, I had I don't know if you want to go into that kind of stuff. 
yeah. yeah. So I um I, I I had this dream and and I was walking along a beach that my sister and I know really really well and um actually never never spoken about this <laughs> only to close friends but um um and uh, we were walking and we were talking and all of a sudden she stopped and she sort of turned me around so that we were facing each other really, really close and she said I've got to go now and she she dove into my chest like disappeared into my chest and um and I I like woke up um like I'd been winded like I couldn't I was literally leant over the side of the bed trying to get my breath back like that feeling when someone's punching in the stomach like you're winded and you can't find your breath that's what happened that's how I woke like gasping for breath and couldn't get it and I, I'm, I got myself to the toilet and sort of myself organized and, and, and it was the most profound experience because that was a dream state yet the, the windedness was an awake state I would just never be able to kind of figure out how that happened but yeah it just felt it, it, you know one of those dreams that felt more real than reality if that makes sense but um I got up you know, I you know got myself organised and literally sat down at my desk and the entire eulogy just came straight out of me. It was effortless. And um, I talked about like I ended the eulogy off by saying um, now I'm now I'm I'm breathing for both of us. And that was a sort of a, a connection point back to the dream because I'd lost my breath. Wow, wow. And I mean, I always think about. I mean, I remember trying to write my grandma's eulogy after she died and I just thought this is such a um this is such an annoying tradition that I have to write this eulogy because I can't put her life into words um and I feel like I'm just not doing justice to it and um it was just it felt it felt like fake it felt like um like I was doing it for the people coming to the funeral rather than for her um so I had a lot of sort of resentment towards those formalities. Um, I mean, how did you, did you view the eulogy as something that was real and something that really did encapsulate what you wanted to say or was it more for um, what you thought other people would want to know about her? Here's the thing for me, um, like in my role, um, like I, I, I was a, um, I was basically a writer, you know. Um, I was a, a senior corporate communications guy for for big Fortune 500 companies, and I basically spent 20 years writing speeches for for senior executives and writing press releases and editing this, that and the other. And um, for me, um, back then, you know, when I hadn't kind of fully fully done done the work, um, the, the the eulogy um, had this idea that people were expecting it to be. Awesome because of me being kind of a mm. writer, you know. So for me, it was this pull, you know, whilst I was being as authentic as I can, I wonder whether it was more about the performance mm. and actually wanting to get across what I wanted to say about my sister. I mean, I think it was in there, but I remember kind of this um, overriding notion of, of wanting to make everyone think that. I'd, done a really good job as opposed to just getting across the sentiments of my sister and not really doing it. Yeah. I care about, about performance or not. So that was a, that was a real lesson for me. And I actually didn't figure that out until years later. 
Um, and it actually hit me pretty hard when I realized that I'd made that internally, I'd actually made that exercise more about me, my sister. Yeah. Um, like I said, after that dream, the words did come tumbling out and, and then I looked at them and thought, you know, are they good enough? And that's just you know, the old me, I guess, still in that kind of mode of wanting to make a really good impression on everybody yeah. else. As yeah. Opposed yeah. To, it's really important. So, yeah, but yeah. that's a broader sort of theme that um, across our culture that it's um, you, you sort of separate yourself from your internal state somehow because it's too scary to give your internal state to other people around you. It's too vulnerable. Um, yeah. yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. I also just think that, you know, back then I was just constantly looking for validation and, you know, I wanted to basically have everybody at the wake come up to me and say, oh, that was awesome, you know, yeah. opposed to you know, making it about me. And I think that was very indicative of, of the way I'd spent my, you know, 20 years in corporate, just me, yeah. me. And these are the lessons that I was learned. That was the early days, but these were the lessons that I was beginning and, you know, that my sister taking her own life was kind of the starting point of a bunch of things which happened to kind of make me who I am today. And Asha, on that topic, in terms of suicide, taking your own life, I'm wondering the conditions that sort of, that sort of warranted, you talked about her, 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 her illness, her illness. Where did, how did you face that she was no longer here, but 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 the act of suicide. I'm wondering your sort of philosophy or understanding of of what what suicide suicide means to you, and and in what conditions is it warranted? It's a really good, it's a really good question, and I think that my viewpoint on that has definitely changed over time. Um, but I've written quite extensively about that um, for various publications and I really view and this is you know obviously this is a very delicate topic but for me um we always talk about having having a birthright and you know I, I believe that we have a death right too. Now, under what circumstances that's valid or not, that's the part that's up for debate. But it's not up to me to make a decision for somebody else in terms of threshold that they can bear. And um, this is very pertinent when it comes to, I'm sure we'll get to my mum. You know, there there was a set of circumstances under which my mum was living which were, um, in my mind, unbearable. Um, And, you know, we're skipping forward again, but it's probably a good time to bring it in because a couple of years after my sister took her own life, my mum took her own life. Um, My mum was, you know, a long way down the path with with a very aggressive cancer and um there was a difference in my mind between those two because when mum took her own life i was i was relieved um because i'd seen the um suffering and the pain you know that, that she, she'd been in and um i actually think it was really brave and really courageous of her to, to do what she did mm. um, so it, it really does get down to the set of circumstances, but I don't believe um, anyone else is really um, has the right to, to, to decide what those parameters are. I mean, clearly, like, you know, a 16-year-old boy who's just had his girlfriend break up with him and become suicidal, you know, that's 
we, we need to treat that differently. But it's a very delicate balance and a very delicate line, isn't it? So it's a hard one to say this is and, and this isn't, you know, unwarranted. Like I've, I've said in my own life, again, we're skipping forward, but I guess the question's a good one that it, it warrants it. I'm living with an incurable progressive form of cancer myself. So I have thought about um, the trajectory of my mum's life and, and I might do in a similar situation. And, you know, I have pretty much made it clear to my friends and family uh, that I may reach a threshold that I can no longer bear and in which case I'll take my life. And what, and, would, you know, what, what would that threshold involve? What circumstances would that threshold meet? How would I know? Um, the, 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 only, the only answer I can give to that question is I'll know it when I see it. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I've, had, I've, had, um, um, I've had this conversation with, with other people and in my work I've had this conversation with, with people with terminal cancer as well. And sometimes, particularly guys, they, they seem to have this mark in the, in, in the sand. It's like when I can no longer wipe my own bum, that's the day. You know what I mean? And I'm like, really? Well, I get to that day and you might still have quite a lot of joy in your life and, and you might decide that, you know, um, not being able to wipe your own bum is a, is a fair price to pay to keep on living. So I don't think you can kind of say when X happens and that's the day. You just live into it. And for me, it's like, you know, there may or there may not come a time when I reach that threshold and I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the, what the, the, the parameters are or, or, or what particular events might need to unfold, but all I know is if I get there, Oh, no. It made me reflect, Ash, for a little bit. Is A bit of my background was working in the police force and attending many, many scenes um, where, where people had taken their life and providing countless, countless death notices to families. And the, the, the summary and view I have that at you know, close to 30 than I did in my early 20s is, has changed drastically in terms of um, I sort of ask myself now, you know, what, what does it mean to ask whether, you know, someone's life is worth living? It's sort of you, you, you mentioned that threshold um, and not knowing really what that looks like, what, what that emotional transient experience will look like. Do you, do you fear that? Do you fear that experience or is it something that you're – some way looking forward to you know my relationship with death is um is pretty robust i mean i see death as a as an amazing teacher actually um what i've learned the lessons through my sister and my mum, and, and also through um what i'm going through it's it's like the greatest guru that you could possibly have like keeping death in plain sight actually enables you to live a very very fulfilling life and i think to many of us we, 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 we brush death under the carpet and we don't actually see that it's a, it's, it's, it's a teacher hidden in plain sight. I mean, if you can meet everyone at the level that they have a finite number of days to live and, and, and you know, they're going to lose loved ones and all these things and, and that, that should bring you together in, 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 in the most beautiful ways. I, I think about a, what drives a relationship, what drives love in essence Partly because deep down you know you've only got a certain number of days together. Mm. I think if you, if you took that away, if you took death away, um, you wouldn't love as hard. And, yeah. and be, be like, 
it's forever. So, you know, I, I think death is, is very connected to beauty. It's very connected to creativity in human beings. What, what drives a human to, to be so creative, to climb Mount Everest, to do all these, you know, the Sistine Chapel? It's like it's all around, it's all, it's all around death. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at kids um, and their view of life um, and how they're not, they're not thinking in the same, um, I guess, arrogance that adults have about how long they've got. Um, I, I don't know about you too, but I really see a difference in terms of how kids are. Um, and then when they reach a certain age, that sort of innocence is just gone. Um, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, you know, my son, um, Jack, who's, who's five, I mean, obviously he came along after I got diagnosed with cancer. So you know, he kind of, he doesn't know, but, you know, it's really interesting because he, he, he energetically he kind of knows when I'm having a bad day with cancer and he sort of seems to, he, he's, he, I, I reckon he knows that something's, something's a bit different with, with dad than other dads. I, I just sort of intuitive, you know, and um, you're absolutely right in terms of what you're saying there. But the fact that I um, have this diagnosis, like I don't know if I'm going to, drop dead before the, the next 50 year old who lives down the street from me it's like i don't know but you know but just because i'm a little bit more informed because i have this diagnosis it has just completely changed my relationship with my son it is every day it just becomes so so precious but i'm, I'm no different from anybody else i've just got a little bit more information which doesn't actually mean anything to be honest but as a result of that it, it powers my relationship with my son to a degree that otherwise probably wouldn't wouldn't have had you know um even taking it one step further and some people will probably bristle at this if i can look at my son and think one day you're going to die and i don't know when and i don't know how and actually it could be really soon if i say that to someone they'll that their immediate reaction is oh my god you can't think like that and i'm like why not because if i think like that I'm going to love that child so hard. Mm. You know what I mean? Totally. But, but, but we shy away from that and we say, oh, no, that's, that's a thought that I, I can't handle because it's too, um, almost like I have to pretend that, that that's not a truth. Mm. Um, and so therefore you miss out on the lessons. Absolutely miss out on the lessons. We just wanted to pause there for a bit of a reflection. Asher has become deeply aware of his own mortality. What struck me was his comment and reflection around his own son, where he looks at his son and says, meditates on his son's prospective death, his potential death. Maybe allowing him to kind of bridge the gap between there's accumulation of days in life, the mundane days, insignificant days, the interesting, the exciting days, and then life's inevitable and often abrupt end that, that comes so quickly without warning or time to prepare. I do think this conversation um, around death is actually growing and growing. Like I'm noticing, 
you know, some in Australia, you know, I've had to chat with a few people that have been, you know, the, 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 the rise of things like death cafes, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, um, and, and um, um, death for dinner, which is, a, which is a thing where you basically um, get eight of your friends around or ten of your friends around for a dinner party. But the theme, the topic is to talk about death. Um, and, and a lot of these other things kind of bubbling up at the moment, particularly with, you know, um, Andrew Denton's work recently. And, and I, I feel like we pretty much covered all the tough conversations in you know, 2020. I think death is kind of almost like the last one. And um, I, I really feel like it's starting to happen. So um, particularly with around, you know, with coronavirus, you know, yeah. I think that people like death is getting, you know, into people's faces and you can see what that's doing it's just completely unsettling people but here's an opportunity yeah they the sense of like control with the toilet paper like let's just buy up because it's something we can control unbelievable right um and and to me those situations whilst i have compassion it's like it just shows the need for 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 this type of conversation um Really, really does. It's like um, I, I was, I was sort of laughing about the toilet paper thing. thing you know, it, like faced with Armageddon, like the average human being is is mostly concerned about having a clean bum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it circles back to what you were saying before. That's some people's limit when yeah. they can't wipe their bum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred percent, right? You know, so maybe, yeah, exactly. But you know, but it, it, it's okay because it shows, you know, that that's that's. That's where we're at, and that's and that's okay because it just shows you know there's a level of work to be done. But as I said, I think um, I, I'm just even since I began doing these workshops a few a few years ago, I can already see changing landscape, and it's it's, it's good. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Asha. Um, how can people find you if they want to get involved? Yeah, look, probably the easiest thing is just to go to my website, which is um, ashapackman.com. And um, from there, it sort of points to all the, all the um, various directions. So, I mean, my two main things is running the studio in St Kilda, which is called The Fifth Direction, um, and the work I do with men, uh, Warrior Within. Great. Um, so those are kind of the two, two main things. That was Making Sense of Chaos, a podcast about death and dying, love, grief and hope. Produced by Maddie Brigel and Jason Wheel. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.